Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. So Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. And I often wonder when we get to this passage of Scripture, why Paul didn't start here in Romans. Because in this section, he's going to go all the way back to Adam, which is where everything started. Okay, so let's just get our bearings straight in regards to the book of Romans, chapter 1, verse 18, to chapter 3, verse 20. All of us are sinful. We're all under sin. We're all under condemnation, Jew and Gentile. Then chapter 3, verse 21, through where we ended up last week, chapter 5, verse 11, we are justified freely by God's grace through Jesus Christ. He died for us. We have salvation. yippee yeha awesome, powerful, glorious, we're saved. And so Paul's going to take a little digression here and say, I want to backtrack and tell you how this whole thing started. Because everything started back in the Garden of Eden with what Adam did. And so in this section, and as a matter of fact, the entire Bible, there's only two and only two categories of every single person in the world. There's, there's, there's one or the other. There's, there's no in-between. There's no middle ground. You're either in Christ, in Christ, by grace alone, through faith alone, i.e. you're saved, or you are, quote, in Adam and still dead in your sins and under condemnation. Okay? So, you're either lost or saved, you're either a Christian or a non-Christian. The way Paul describes it here in Romans chapter 5 is you're either in Adam or you're in Christ. So here's the basic question. Okay, basic question. Why was I born a sinner in the first place? What did Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden, how did that impact me today? Okay, now we've looked extensively at the doctrine of total depravity, that we're all sinful, we're all corrupt, we all have a sin nature. But in this passage of Scripture, Paul's going to draw it even further out as to why we're the way we are. And it all goes back to what Adam did. And it brings up a lot of questions. So this passage of Scripture is confusing. You read it and you pass along and you're like, okay, I kind of understand what he's saying, but it brings up a lot of questions. There's a lot of theological questions and there's a lot of questions based upon the wording that we really have to understand because Paul's making a comparison contrast between Adam and Jesus. Adam is often called Adam, right? The first Adam. Sometimes Jesus is called the second Adam um, or we're either in Adam or we're in Christ. So let's read together Romans chapter 5 verses 12 through 21, okay? Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death spread and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. 
For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will become or will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Makes sense to you, right? Confusing language. Okay, so chapter 5, verse 12, gives us a very, very important teaching. How did sin come into the world? Through one man, Adam. Okay. And what did Adam bring? What did that sin bring? It brought, well, not yet. It did bring condemnation, but what, is, what does verse 12 say? It brought death, and death did what? Spread to all people. We, we understand that, right? Adam sinned, he brought sin into the world, he brought death into the world. But that very last phrase there has gotten hundreds of years of debate over what that means. Because all sinned. Okay? What in the world does it mean that all sinned? Okay, because here's the, here's the point. Who was in the garden and sinned? Adam. Were you there when Adam ate from the fruit? I mean, that song, were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when Adam ate from the fruit? Were you physically there when Adam ate from the fruit? Were you there when Adam ate from the fruit? Is, did what he do implicate you? Okay, so here's the question. What in the world does it mean that we understand, we can understand sin came into the world through one man. We understand that. Adam sinned, sin came into the world. Okay, we understand death came through that sin and death spread to all men because all sinned. So what does that mean? Let me give you the three major views in church history that have tried to attempt to answer this very difficult question. So there's been three major views. So the first view, view one, by the way, this is a heretical view, but we're going to tell you the view. View one is what we call imitation or Pelagianism. We'll talk about why it's called Pelagianism here in a minute. Okay? So what this view says is that all people, every single person, will eventually commit actual sins because you're simply following Adam's example that he did in the garden. So you're imitating or following Adam's example. This view was popularized by a monk named Pelagius in the 400s. Adam was the first sinner. 
but humans are born neutral. You do not inherit anything from Adam. You just followed his bad example due to environmental factors. So given enough time, you would have done what Adam had done. But you didn't. Basically, what imitation or Pelagianism says is nothing that Adam did in the garden has any impact on you today. You and you alone are the ones that are responsible for your sinning. You don't inherit a sin nature. You're not under condemnation. You are born a blank slate. You are born neutral. You can choose to sin or not sin based upon your environment, based upon all types of factors. But all things being equal, he says it's actually... Here's what Pelagius said. Pelagius said it's actually blasphemous. It's actually blasphemous to say that you are born with a sin nature because somebody back thousands of years ago, committed a sin that you weren't part of. Okay? This was viewed a heresy at four different, three different church councils. Council of Carthage in 418, Council of Ephesus in 431, and Council of Orange in 529. So we can write off Pelagianism and say, there, there's no way that is true based just upon experience and what the Bible teaches. We have inherited sin from Adam. Okay, so there's a second view. And this view is a popular view. And this view, I agree with this view, but it doesn't go far enough, okay? So the view two is the corruption view, okay? We inherit a sin nature from Adam, which makes us corrupt, and that nature leads us to eventually commit actual sins. Okay, so, so let, me, let me draw this on the board. Uh, not draw it, but write it. Okay, so you're born with that nature, a corrupt sin nature. Okay, that's all you get from Adam is just the sin nature. And because you have that sin nature, you're going to eventually actually commit a sin. Given enough time, you'll actually commit a sin. Okay. Is that biblical? Yes. Are we sinners because we sin or are we sinners because we're or do we sin because we're sinners? Which came first, the chicken or the egg? What comes first, the nature or the sinning? The nature, okay? This view is called the original sin view, and it basically teaches that we're born sinful. We agree with this view because Psalm 51.5 says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. I agree with the corruption view, but I don't think that's what Paul's teaching here. And this is where it's going to get difficult tonight. This is where we're going to have to really put on our thinking caps and understand things that we don't understand in our culture. Okay, what country do we live in? It's not a trick question. USA, America, right? Okay, so what we have a declaration of... Okay, we, we are very freedom-oriented, individualistic-oriented. Everything's related to the individual, right? Okay, we're one of the few nations in the world where it's all about the individual and individual rights. Okay, you go to other countries where they have more of a communal aspect, where the entire community is infected, is impacted. So back in the Bible times, there was more of a focus on the community than on the individual. What one person did affects everybody else. You don't just live in isolation. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. So here's the imputation view. 
the, the third, third view that I think what Paul's talking about here. We agree with the corruption view, but I don't think that goes far enough into what Paul's teaching here. Okay. What the imputation view, this is controversial for some people, but this has been the traditional reformed view with some nuances here and there pretty much throughout church history. So here's the imputation view. Not only did we inherit a sinful nature from Adam, but his guilt in the garden was imputed or credited to us so that we're born guilty for his sin. So you're not just born with the sin nature, you're actually born guilty before you actually commit a sin. So here's the difference. What, in, in, in some people's view, what makes you guilty is committing the sin. Once you commit the sin, then you become guilty because you actually personally committed the sin. What the, the imputation view says is you're born with the sin nature and you're born guilty. Both. You don't have to wait to commit a sin to be guilty. You're already born guilty. Okay, so what this says is that Adam was our federal head, our, our leader, the head of the human race. And what he did in the garden as our representative not only gave us a sinful nature, but also made us born guilty of his sin, even though we were not yet born or had committed any sin on our own. Okay. Brings up a question. What question should you be thinking? How can I be held accountable for a sin I didn't commit. That's Adam's problem, not mine. Adam should be held accountable for his sin, but why am I being held accountable for Adam's sin? I should be held accountable for my own personal sins. Okay? Another question you should be asking. Why do people die? And what is death? Is death a natural part of how God created the world? No. How did God create us? Okay. Death is a penalty for sin. Okay, so think about those questions. Okay, so in 1 Corinthians 15, 21, and 22, Paul gives the same similar kind of argument. Keep dropping my marker here. Paul says, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Again, there's that focus there on death, being in Adam, being made alive in Christ. And so you can be born guilty for Adam's sin, even though you haven't committed any sins yet. Okay, so that's why you can be a child of wrath like the rest of mankind, which Ephesians 2 says. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So I want you to think hard about this. We do inherit a sin nature from Adam. But what actually condemns us? What sends you to hell? Is it, just, is it just the sin nature alone that sends you to hell if you die? Or is it the guilt that you have? Okay, but let's ask the question. What happens if you die before you actually commit a sin? 
like a baby. Are you guilty? And what happens? Okay, so, so there's some questions we've got to ask here. It brings up two important questions, okay? So this whole issue of how can I be held accountable for Adam's sin when I wasn't there but I'm born guilty? Two questions. The first question is the issue of fairness. How can this be fair? And the second question is what about infants that die before they have an opportunity to actually commit a sin? What happens to those babies? Okay? Now, this particular passage of Scripture I don't think answers those questions directly. Paul just states the doctrine. He just states it, assumes we're going to agree with him. Okay? So here's the, the fairness issue. The first issue is fairness. Why am I or why are we held accountable for something that someone else did? Does that sound like fair justice? Scotty goes and robs a bank and he goes to jail, but Tiffany, his wife, and his whole family goes to jail even though they didn't actually commit the crime. They go to jail because Scotty committed the crime. Well, how come it's fair for Tiffany to have to go? She didn't commit the crime. Well, Scotty's the head of the family, and what Scotty does impacts the entire family. So there's some issues of fairness here. Okay, so first, this issue of solidarity is all throughout the Old Testament. I want you to turn to Joshua just for a moment, and I want you to remember what happened to Achan. Remember Achan? He stole some of the devoted items when they came and the Israelites ransacked Jericho. And then the next town they went to, they were defeated at Ai. And Josh was like, why are, why are we, what happened here? We, we had victory and now something happened. We, we incurred the anger of the Lord and something's wrong in the camp of Israel. Somebody, somebody stole something. So let's pick up in chapter 7, verse 1. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Okay, interesting. Who committed the sin? Achan. Who's held responsible for the sin of Achan? Okay, go down to verse 10. The Lord said to Joshua, Get up, why have, you, why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They've committed, or they've transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They've taken some of the devoted things. They've stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Okay, so they went around and found out that it was Achan. And you go to the very end of the chapter, and who gets stoned to death? Just Achan? Achan's entire family. Okay, so in the Old Testament at least, there's this whole idea that what one person does has impact on everybody else. Okay. So let me give you an example. When you have a senator from Colorado that goes to Washington, is he representing you? Whether, whether you voted for him or not, do they represent you? Okay. Okay. They go on behalf of Colorado to Washington, and what do they do? They pass laws. Nothing, okay. <laughs> they do nothing. Okay. They pass laws. Okay, they, they do nothing. Okay. So let's say that a law is passed in Washington on behalf of a Colorado senator that goes there. The decision he makes, does it impact you by living in Colorado? Did you go to Washington and vote for that thing? 
No, but he's your representative, right? Okay, so in God's economy, whether you like it or not, okay, you can argue with God all you want, but here's the way God set it up. Adam is our representative. And what Adam did in the garden impacts us. Whether we like it or not, that's, that's the way God set it up. So if you say it's not fair, you can say all day it's not fair, but you're basically arguing against God, and this is what God said is the way it works. So you can say it's not fair, but then, okay, okay, God, it's not fair. God can just say, well, I'm sorry, that's the way I set it up. That's just the way it is, okay? But let me just give you another point here, okay? We see this principle in the Bible, but let me just ask, let me just ask you this question. If you were there in the garden, given enough time, you would have sinned also. We're quick to blame Adam. Why am I being held accountable for something he did? What would happen if you were in Adam's shoes and you were in the garden? Do you think you would have sinned? Given enough time, you probably would have, okay? And then you would have been accountable. So that's kind of a, a weak argument, but I want you to think about the cross for a moment. Who killed Jesus on the cross? Okay, Acts 4, 27 through 28. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan predestined to take place. Who killed Jesus? Was it Pilate? He sentenced Jesus to death. Was it the Jewish Pharisees and leaders of the day? Yeah, they turned him over. Could you say Judas was implicated in it in some way? Okay, the Roman soldiers definitely. So who was physically there nailing Jesus to the cross? Okay, but technically, who's responsible for putting Jesus on the cross? We are. Okay, so we're responsible for, you could say it this way, you're responsible for killing Jesus even though you weren't there because it's your sin that sent him there. You didn't spike the nail in his hand. So what one person's act, we're all held accountable to it. So the first question we ask is, okay, if we are born guilty for Adam's sin, first objection would be to say, that doesn't seem fair. And what's the answer to that? Tough toenails. That's just what God says. Okay. Now, the second issue is, okay, if you're thinking hard, what about um, infants? What about infants who die and never had a chance to actually commit a sin? Infants that die, aborted babies, stillbirth babies, infants that are at a point where they don't actually commit a physical sin, are they still guilty for Adam's sin? Question. And if they are, do they go to heaven if they never had a chance to repent or believe? Okay. So let's, let's talk about infant salvation. When David had sex with Bathsheba, whether it was rape or adultery or a combination of both, we won't go down that path tonight, we do know that that baby died. Bathsheba's child died. And if you remember what did David do, he went and he mourned the loss of that child. And um, his friends came and comforted him. And he said something, and David said a theological statement that um, many believe gives insight into this issue of infant salvation. Now, let me just say this. The Bible is not very explicit on this subject. 
it says less than what we'd want it to say. So in the words of John Calvin, don't go beyond what the Bible says, but believe enough of what the Bible says. So you've got to be careful. There's some things the Bible doesn't tell us, so we don't want to go beyond that. We can make guesses, but I'm going to try to tell you the best I can tonight what I think is the view. But here's what David says. But now he is dead. This is the baby that died in childbirth, Bathsheba's baby. Now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? What's the answer? Can I bring him back again after he's dead? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. I will go to him. Where, where's David going to go to him? In heaven. I will go to him, but he will not return to me. Brent. It could be death, but I also believe that the Old Testament saints were saved. They, were gonna, they, were, they went to Abraham's bosom, which is heaven. Right. But in terms of the context of this, it seems like it could be that, well, okay, he's not going to come back from the dead. So you're basically saying all David's saying is, I'm going to die too. No, you can't dogmatically. This, this is not a didactic teaching that teaches about the salvation of infants. It's a statement that David makes that we make an inference from. Okay. But let me just, I'm not building my case on this one passage of Scripture. So let me, let me go through and let me build the case, and then you, if you guys have questions after that. Okay, so um, I will tell you, we'll build the case for what, what I think it, what the Bible teaches. Okay, so here we go. Like I said, the Scripture does not give a great deal of information on this issue. Okay. Other question is, okay, how can infants be saved if they never had a chance to exercise faith in Christ? Can an infant consciously trust in Jesus? Aren't you saved by trusting in Jesus? So if an infant never had a chance to trust in Jesus, how can they be saved if they never repented and believed? Okay. Third question and this is why I've had to wrestle with this issue because of my own personal son. How can a mentally incapable person make a decision, quote, for Christ when they're incapable of doing so? How are they saved? Okay, so those are some initial questions. Okay, so let me give you some statements. There, this, is, this bothers some people, but there are no innocent babies. What does this passage of Scripture say? Everyone is born with original sin from Adam. Infants are born guilty. Okay. Now, before you get mad at me, let me keep going, okay? Number two, if a deceased infant or a mentally incapable person is saved, that salvation must be on the basis of Christ's atonement. In other words, Jesus died for their sins. Okay? And another theological statement, if they are to be saved, it can only be because they have been regenerated and sanctified by the grace of God. So, I'm going to get to this point in just a moment, but it's a very important point. It's the point that helped me work through these things. And then number four, if they are saved, their salvation must occur before they die. In other words, there's no like post-mortem salvation. 
you understand what I'm saying? God's grace has to be operating in their life. Now, let me give you four issues biblically to help us understand this. Now, this is a, this is a difficult subject, but I've got, it's going towards good news, okay? I'm not going to, I'll just give you the answer. All babies, all babies that die go to heaven. Okay, that's the answer. Now, how do I get there? Okay, let me tell you how I get there. Infants are not capable of actual moral good and evil committing sins. Would you agree? Can, can an infant actually commit an actual sin in the body if it died in infancy? Okay, it can't actually commit a sin. And does an infant have cognitive knowledge of moral good and evil? Do they know right from wrong? Can you go to a three-month-old and say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you, don't steal. Don't steal from your sister. What's a three-month-old doing? Eats and poops, right? And cries. That's about all baby does, right? Okay, so Deuteronomy 139. As for your little ones, who you said would become a prey, and your children, who today have no knowledge of good or evil, they shall go in there, and to them I will give it, and they shall possess it. If you go back and you read the Old Testament, oftentimes when it talks about little ones, when it talks about children, oftentimes in the Old Testament it will make a statement it will say, your little ones, your children, they don't know good from evil. They don't know right from wrong. Now, they still have original sin. They still are guilty, but they are not at a capacity to be able to actually commit a physical sin. And if they did commit a physical sin, they wouldn't know it was wrong or right. Okay? So, how are you judged? We talked about this back in chapter 2. How are you judged on the final day of judgment? Divine judgment is administered on the basis of actual deeds committed in the body. 2 Corinthians 5.10 We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for him, what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Can an infant that dies in childbirth be judged on committing deeds in the body? No. Do they know right from wrong? No. Okay, just a side note here. We are not talking about pagan adults who are responsible moral agents and know right from wrong through general revelation and conscience. There's a different category. Okay? We are not talking about adults. We are talking about a specific category of infants and mentally incapable people who have the mental capacity of an infant that don't know morality right from wrong okay number two we have evidence in the bible of infants who were you can say regenerated or indwelt or somehow the holy spirit came into that baby before the baby was born okay jeremiah 1 5 before i formed you in the womb i knew you and before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Now you can say, well, that just applies to Jeremiah. God knew him as a prophet. Okay, I'll give that to you, but let's go to John the Baptist. For he will be, this is Luke 1.15, For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or be strong, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. 
How can you be filled with the Holy Spirit before you're born? Well, it happened to John the Baptist. Now, can I dogmatically say because of that happened to Jeremiah and because that happened to John the Baptist, therefore it happens to all children? I can't make that statement, but I can say there are at least two biblical examples of it happening. Okay? So we have an example of the Holy Spirit doing a work in a baby before it's born. Now, this is another important one. Number three, how did Jesus receive the little children? In Matthew 19, 13 through 15, the children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them. The disciples rebuked them, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. Now, there are two words for children or child in the Greek language. Matthew and Mark use the word uh, pedion, which means infant. In secular Greek, it was used of a child up to about seven years old. That's, that's kind of a Greek cutoff in Greek culture. I'm not saying that there's anything special about being seven, but that's just the way it was used in the secular Greek language. Mark 10, 13 through 14 and they were bringing the children, the, the infants, the little ones, to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked him. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for such belongs the kingdom of God. Now, Luke uses a different Greek word. He doesn't use padion. He, use bre- he uses a Greek word brephos, which is literally more of an infant. It's actually even more of the word infant than the word padion. So now they were bringing even infants brephos to him that he might touch them and when the disciples saw it they rebuked him but jesus called to them saying let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of god um, the word brephos in the greek language you may not know this it can mean infant it can mean newborn it could also even mean embryo or fetus that greek word okay. so how does jesus receive the little children Does he turn them away? Do you ever see Jesus turning away the little children? He receives them. He loves them. He lays hands on them. Jesus receives them to himself, the little children. Okay? So children are not able to know right from wrong, and they cannot commit sins in the body, which they'll be judged for. We have evidence of a at least two, Jeremiah and John the Baptist, the Holy Spirit doing a work in them before they were born, and Jesus received the children. And the last one is a theological issue, and this is a theological issue that I hold to, that our church holds to, but some people don't, but it really makes sense to me. Okay, Infants, are, 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 infants can be saved. And you say, well, how can an infant be saved if they don't repent and believe? Okay. Let me just ask you a basic question. What causes you to repent and believe? Why did you repent and believe? Because the Holy Spirit regenerated you first. Okay. So the Holy Spirit, I believe, can sovereignly regenerate an infant, renew their heart of stone with the heart of flesh, and cause them to be born again. In other words, here's the point. In your regeneration, and in a baby's generation, what's, what's the only difference? You, re, 
you were able to vocalize it in repentance and faith. But did the heart change came first, right? The regeneration came first. So if regeneration precedes faith, if, it, if regeneration comes before faith, if God causes you to be born again so that you will believe, this happens to everyone who's born again. The Holy Spirit works in their hearts to renew them and free them from bondage. Repentance and faith are the means through which a person is saved, but an infant or a mentally incapable cannot exercise these means. They're still regenerated by the Holy Spirit on the basis of Christ's atonement. So here's the conclusion. All children who die in infancy and all mentally handicapped persons whose intellectual and moral judgment cannot surpass that of children are indeed saved. This is the view of Spurgeon. This is the view of the Westminster Confession. This is the view of the 1689 Confession. This is the review of Reformed Presbyterians and Baptists throughout church history. Questions on that? Brent. Okay. So, and that, was, that was when they were in the mother's womb. Okay. In the Old Testament and the New Testament. The other thing is that but that's an issue. Of, that's more an issue of predestination, Jacob and Esau, than it is the, the destiny of, a, of an infant that dies. Because Esau grew up to live out his. He didn't die in infancy. So that's a different. I mean, we can go down that path, but that's a different. I think, I think we're comparing apples to oranges at that point. And it's not based on, I mean, I've had lots of people that have said that. That babies go to hell? Well, that, okay. You and I would disagree on one thing about this. Okay. And that's the fact that you said there's, there's not evil in children. I've had three of them. And I didn't say there, I did not say there was not evil. No, okay. I, they, uh, well, okay. Okay. Let me give you an example. Okay. 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 I've had, okay. Okay. No, I'm sorry. So, okay, so. Okay, all right. Are you guys tracking with the argument? Babies are born sinful because of Adam, but they haven't reached the point where they've actually committed an actual sin, even though they're guilty. So, if they're going to be saved, it's going to be because God regenerated them in the womb or sometime before death. It's on the basis of Christ's death. Jesus receives the little children, um, and then when those when the confessions talk about all elect infants, like the Westminster Confession. Then there's the argument, okay, are there, are there non-elect infants? If you read commentaries like on the Westminster, on the 1689, some of those old, common, all those old creeds and confessions, there was the assumption that evidence that you, all babies were elect that died in infancy. Does, does that make sense? Again, so again, the Bible doesn't give us dogmatic, clear-cut, I can stay up and give you chapter and verse expositional teaching on the salvation of infants. There's some things we can build a, a theology of that, um, but, but pastorally, the last thing you want to do, okay, at my former church, we had an issue. Uh, I remember this happened at my former church in Colorado Springs. There was a guy there that was really extreme on these views, and there, this was a Sunday school class, and this young couple had just had a miscarriage. 
and the class was trying to minister to them. And, you know, like, like you should, a class should be ministering to this, this family. Well, this guy in the class said, well, you know, I'm not sure if your baby is in heaven or hell because your baby might not be among one of the elect. Well, how do you think that lady responded? I mean, she was devastated. And we kind of had to come and talk to that guy. Ended up that guy anyway wanted to throw out our pastor and kick him out and all this kind of stuff. So that guy was bad news anyway. But pastorally speaking, I would never, if a person loses a baby, the last thing you want to say, the last thing you want to do is have a theological discussion with somebody who's lost a baby. What you want to say is God is good. I don't know why this is happening, but I, can tr- I trust that God is good and that Jesus receives the little children and your baby's in heaven right now and trust in God to get you through this. That's about all you can say in times like this. Um, Cindy, go ahead. So I totally agree with that. Um, I agree with um, there's a difference between coming in with death on the head. Sure. We don't think it's a theological argument, which this borders on, because right. we don't have anything sure. that is clear cut. Sure. There's nothing that says, you know, chapter and verse, boom, right. this is what happens exactly. When that's the case, you've got to trust God. Yeah. And you've got to trust the God who has, has shown himself to you that what he does will be completely right. Right. God is um, just. Yeah, he's right. Given that, I would still make the argument, and, and for the sake of argument, not for the sake of pastoring to anybody, not for the sake of counseling anybody, not for, but just, um, I would make the argument that only God knows the heart. Yeah. And so... In the case of like Esau and Jacob, he knew before they were born. He right. knew the heart. If they had died before they were born, he still said Esau and hate. Right. So, so well, and that's, he goes, there may be something right. there because he, he knows, he makes us vessels right. of righteousness or right. right. You're, you're going, and yeah. Then, and then the other piece to that is, my other, I guess, fear to it is, um, I work with people who, when they're pregnant, will come to me and say, I'm pregnant, but I can't raise this baby, therefore I'm going to have an abortion because I'd rather kill the baby. Yeah. And, and they can say baby. Right, they can use the terminology. <laughs> and they can use the terminology, and, and I could see somebody then using the argument of, well, all babies go to heaven. Yeah, so, so better that I do Might this. as well go ahead and abort the baby because it's going to go to heaven anyway. Yeah. Right. Which That's faulty logic, yeah. Very yeah. Logic, yeah. Well, let me let me just give you guys a personal. Okay, so you guys know my son Zachary. He's 19 now, um, and he's not. He's still. He's what we consider mentally incapable. He he's nonverbal. He cannot speak. Okay, so he's never going to come to me and Don and profess his faith in Christ because he can't do that. But I believe that God can regenerate him deep in his heart, and give him saving faith. Through the merits of Christ, he just, the same thing that happened to you, you were regenerated, you just had the ability to vocalize it. Zachary's regenerated, he just doesn't have the mental capacity to be able to, to say it. Does that make sense? And so I had to work through this whole situation back when, when Zachary was first diagnosed, you know, almost 18, 17 years ago. You know, what, what it really does happen to mentally incapable people. What, and, and your theology does affect that. And so, any other questions on infant salvation? Because the two questions related to Adam's guilt, okay, if we are born with Adam's guilt, the two objections are going to be, number one, that's not fair. How can I be implicated for something I didn't do? I wasn't there in the garden. The other one is, okay, 
if I'm born guilty and, and I can't, like a baby, I can't actually commit a physical sin in my body, how, how can I, what happens to that baby? Does he go to heaven? Okay, so the answer is, yes, you're born guilty. No, it's not fair. Get over it. That's the way God made it. Number two, yes, infants who die go to heaven. That's, those are the two answers, okay? Any questions on that before we move forward in Romans chapter 5? Some of you are smiling like you want to answer the question or you're like, okay, you guys ready to keep moving? Okay, this is, I, I keep saying, every week I say, Romans is confusing. Romans, that's why I have to go slow because it takes me all week to figure out what Paul's saying. So let's go to chapter 5, verses 13 and 14. Um, this gets a little confusing too because he's going to talk about the law was given before Moses. And I mean, the, anyway, let's read it. Sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Okay, here's Paul's point in a nutshell. Okay, so who, who, who was the first sinner? Adam. What do we know happened with Moses? Sunday mornings, we're going through Exodus. He gave the law. So from Adam to Moses, was sin still sin? Were people still born guilty and inheriting Adam's sin? Did people still die? Okay. That was all happening, right? So it wasn't like people were getting off the hook. People still died. People still were born sinful. But what happened when the law came in? And, Paul, and Paul's going to address this later. What happened when the law came in? What did the law actually do? Yeah, the law gave a specific name or a specific title or a specific description to what Actually, that sin was. So, so let's just ask it this way. Before you had the Ten Commandments, from Adam to Moses, was stealing stealing? If you went and took somebody's possession that wasn't yours, was that a sin? Okay. But was it one of the commandments, thou shalt not sin? Not yet, because it hadn't been given from Sinai. It was still a sin. It's just when the Ten Commandments came, it, it, it put names to those so that people knew. So people who lived before Moses were still guilty of sinning, they just didn't have a specific detailed written law explaining that, okay? So what I want to do now is there, Paul gives five contrasting statements between Adam and Jesus. And I wish I could draw this on a chart, but since we're on PowerPoint, if you go through each verse, you can actually, you can actually draw a chart. Like what I would encourage you to do on your own if you're doing a Bible study of this, because you can see it because each verse does it. So like on one side of the paper, okay, put, put Adam and then put a line down the middle and then on the other side of the paper, put Christ. And then each verse, just write down what, what happens when you're in Adam and then contrast it to what happens when you're with Christ. That's what I did when I was doing this personal Bible study. It helps you see it. Um, and maybe I can, maybe next week or whatever, I didn't, I didn't bring you guys a chart, but I'll show it to you just kind of in statements, okay? So let's look at verse 15. So these are five contrasting statements between what happens being in Adam and how Jesus has taken us out of that and given us something far greater, okay? So um, let's look at verse 15. The free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Okay, so what, what happens on the Adam side of the, of the chart here? Okay, on the Adam side of the chart, all humans died through Adam's one trespass. 
Now let's stop and think about that for a moment. All humans died through Adam's trespass. Okay? What's on the Jesus side of the chart? All those who have trusted Christ for salvation will receive the free gift of grace. Now, all humans died through Adam's sin. We would expect Paul to say, what would you expect Paul to say? That only Adam died when Adam sinned because he suffered the penalty of his own choice. What did God say to Adam in the garden? Don't eat the fruit. He ate the fruit. Did he die immediately? But did he eventually die? He what? He began to die. Yeah. So you would think in just the way our justice system works, Adam ate the fruit. Adam paid his own penalty. Adam died. But what does it say there? For if many, that's all people, died through one man's trespass. All humans died through Adam's trespass. Now, why does Paul call it a trespass? What's trespass? What, what happens when you're trespassing on somebody's property? My brother got almost arrested one time in high school for trespassing on somebody's property, and the guy came out with a gun and said, you're on my property, you're trespassing. Um, actually, I think one time he almost got this. I'm telling jokes on my, my brother, but this was back in the day when Garden of the Gods used to be like, there, there was a curfew at night, you couldn't be in Garden of the Gods, and he was in Garden of the Gods with his girlfriend after hours, and my brother, I think, almost got arrested for trespassing at Garden of the Gods. So what is trespassing? You're crossing a boundary you're not supposed to be trespassing okay that word that paul uses there for trespass means to fall or to fa- to, to make a false step okay what do we theologically call what adam and eve did in the garden we call it the the fall is it just because they fell down no they they trespassed they fell into sin so what i want us to do here is it be helpful for us to go back to Genesis and actually see what Adam did there. Because Paul's making a huge contrast between what Adam did in the garden with what Jesus gives to us in salvation. So I know we probably are familiar with the story, Adam ate the fruit, blah, blah, blah. But let's go back and actually go look at what Adam actually did. So in Genesis 2, 16 through 17, God gives the first command ever in the Bible. The Lord God commanded the man, commanded the man, so this is a command, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you will surely die. Okay, what's the stipulation? And isn't it interesting how God starts the command? How does He start the command? You are free to eat of any. That's how God's not stingy. God didn't say, Hey, Adam. I'm limiting your pleasure and you can't do anything. And by the way, there's this one little tree over here you can't eat of. God says, you're free. I'm giving you maximum enjoyment of everything in this garden I've created for you. I'm just saying hands off one tree. I'm not being stingy. I'm not, being, I'm not holding out on you. I'm actually giving you maximum pleasure. I'm just saying there's one tree you can't touch. And by the way, if you touch it, if you eat of it, what's going to happen? You will surely... Die. So what's the penalty for, for trespassing God's command? Death. Okay. So we know the story, right? The, 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 the devil came into the garden, tempted Eve. It was pleasing to the eye. So let's, let's turn to Genesis chapter 3 and let's see what happens 
as a result of this trespass. So jump out of Romans and let's go to Genesis 3 for a minute. By the way, I'll just give you guys a little interesting tidbit of the Hebrew language. It's kind of interesting. Um, If you read the end of Genesis, okay, Genesis 2.25. The man and his wife are both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field the Lord God had made. Let me tell you how it reads in Hebrew. The man and wife were nude. The serpent was shrewd. (laughs) It's a rhyme. It's a rhyme in the Hebrew language. They were nude. He was shrewd. But were they just like physically nude or were they they vulnerable to the attack of the the enemy? So let's pick up in verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was to desire to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate and the eyes of both of them were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of the, which I command you not to eat? The man said, The woman you gave to me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is it you've done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. So what do we see are the immediate consequences of this treason? Well, first of all, you see a man-made attempt to deal with sin. How do they deal with their sin? They sew fig leaves together to try to fix their problem in their own ingenuity. I can fix my nakedness. I can fix my shame. I can fix this. We also see that guilt leads to shame. What's wrong? They're hiding. So they're hiding from God. They're not walking with God anymore. What what are they doing? They're alienation. They're hiding. They're no longer walking from God, but they hid from God. So there's shame. There's guilt. There's hiding from God. There's trying to fix the problem. But, But there's something big in verse 10. What's the big thing in verse 10? You see it in full force. What, is, what does he say? I was afraid. What did Adam and Eve have before they sent in the garden? Peace, security, confidence in God. But now immediately after sinning, they're, they're afraid. There's fear, guilt, and shame. And one of the biggest things we see is the blame game, the shifting of accountability. It's kind of actually funny. What, what does Adam say in verse 12? The woman you gave me made me do it, God. Number one, it's your fault for giving her to me. And number two, it's her fault because she made me do it. <laughs> and then what does the woman say? The devil made me do it. That's basically what she says. One of the things about sin is we don't own up to our own sin. Adam doesn't own up to it. What, is, what does David say in Psalm 32.5? I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave my iniquity. I, 
Adam did not own up to his own sin. He blamed. And then what does Eve do? The serpent made me do it. The devil made me do it. Okay? So Adam's trespass brought fear, guilt, shame, alienation, blame shifting, and not wanting to be accountable for their own actions. And it's interesting because in Hosea 6, 7, But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. They dealt faithlessly with me. Adam transgressed the covenant. This is a discussion for a whole other time, but what covenant did Adam trespass? The covenant that God said, if you eat of this, you'll die. Adam did, and he broke that covenant. Let's go down and see what else happens. Let's go down to chapter 3. Let's read verses 23 and 24. I mean, 32. That's not right. It should be 23 and 24. You can't go backwards like that. Okay. Therefore, let's just look at verse 22. The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. As a result of falling, Adam would experience physical death just like God had promised him that he would from eating the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So there's some passages of Scripture that talk about death. Adam died, we die. Psalm 103, 14 through 16. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. You're just dust. Ecclesiastes 3.20. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. In Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what kind of death is this? If all died in Adam, what kind of death is it? I think it's two kinds of death. And I think they're intrinsically linked. We're, We're born spiritually dead because of Adam. So there's a spiritual death that we're born with. But also, we're eventually going to die a physical death because of Adam. Okay, so let's go back to verse 15. Let's go back to Romans. Let's just compare and contrast. That's what Paul is showing us here. Romans 5, 15. Death, we all died through Adam's trespass, but through Christ we've received this grace that has abounded to us. So we could say, if we're going to write on this chart, what did Adam bring us? Death. What did Christ bring us? Grace and life. Okay? All right. Let's look at verse 16. Verse 16. 
And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one's trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Okay, so Adam's one sin brought what into the world to us? Condemnation. What is condemnation? Guilt. Okay, so Adam's one... So it's like, okay, there's this one... One sin, and Christ is going to have one act. We'll talk about that one act. One sin, one man, it brought these things. One man, Jesus, one act, brought these things. Okay? This is a situation everybody's born into. This is a situation you have to get into by, by faith. Okay? You don't just automatically get into Christ. Everybody's born in Adam. Okay? What do we receive in Christ? What's, what's the opposite of condemnation? Justification, which we've talked about, it's a free gift where God counts us as not guilty. Now, here's an important point. Paul does not say that humans are condemned because of our own sin, but we enter the world already condemned or guilty because of Adam's sin. Notice what he says there in verse 16. Judgment following trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Okay? All right, let's go to verse 17. This is the third one. Let me just write. So there's five comparison contrasts. So it's one, two. Okay, so what's the third thing here? Let's look at verse 17. For if because one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So what, what Adam's one sin caused what? Death to reign. Okay. What does it mean for something to reign? It ruled. But on the Christ side, we, we reign in life. We reign in this new life of grace. We're no longer under the rule of death, but we are under the rule of Christ and grace. Okay? I also want you to notice something here in verse 17 that's very, very important. You are born in Adam. Did you do anything to get into that besides being born? Okay. Are you born into being in Christ? How are you born? Okay. So how do you go from being in Adam to being in Christ? Look at verse 17. What do you have to do? What's the word there? Do you see a word there? Receive. Look at verse 17. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. You have to receive Christ. You have to receive grace. You have to trust in Jesus. So there's this idea that's kind of prevalent that you're born a Christian because you're born in America, you're born in a Christian family. Um, you know, you're just kind of born already right with God by virtue of you being born. What does the Bible say? You're born in Adam. 
You're born in death. You're born in condemnation. Death's reigning over you. You have to receive Christ. You have to receive grace. You have to receive Jesus in order to go from being Adam, being in Adam to being in Christ. Okay, let's look at verse 18. This is number four. So what does verse 18 say? Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. Okay, it's a repetition. What's, what, what does it lead to again? Paul, you're repeating yourself. Why? <laughs> he wants us to get it. And then what was the one act that Jesus accomplished? Notice what it says. One trespass led to condemnation. One act of righteousness. Jesus' one act of righteousness leads to justification. What was that one act that Jesus accomplished? A lot of things he did, but what's Paul talking about? It's his death on the cross. So Jesus' death on the cross leads to justification. Now, read that carefully. Can you see a possible error in that passage of Scripture that people could come up with? Okay, for all men. Okay, does that mean if, 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 if Jesus' death on the cross, if that one act, does that mean then that every single person will be saved? It says right there, all men. What does Paul mean? Okay, there's a false doctrine that some people have built out of this actual passage of Scripture. They understand all men to be justified means that eventually all people will be saved, which is called universalism. Now, whether you believe in universalism or not, can that be what Paul's teaching here? Has Paul been bending over backwards to show the contrast? So, Go back to chapter 2, verse 5. What, what did he say back then? Is everybody going to eventually be saved based upon Paul's own words? What does he say back in 2, 5? Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous justice will be revealed. There's a day of wrath for those who don't have Christ. Verse um, Let's see here. For, I'm sorry, it would be verse 9. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also to the Greek. You've got a passage in 2 Thessalonians 1, 7-9. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels and flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glorious might of His power. Okay, so... Does all mean all? When the Bible says all, all can mean all in two different ways. You're like, what are you talking about? Does all mean all? What happens if I said, when I went to Walmart yesterday, the entire, the entire town of Sterling was there. What do I mean by that? There were a lot of people there, right? But was every single person in Sterling there? No, it was an expression. Okay, so all can mean two different things in the Bible. All can mean 
all people without exception, that is every single person who's ever lived will be saved. Do we know that's what the Bible teaches? It can't be all without exception because then there wouldn't be hell. Okay. Or does all mean all people without distinction? That is all kinds of people. Jews, Gentiles, men, women, rich, poor, etc. So I think when Paul says all men, at least to justification in life for all men, I think he's talking about all types of people. Not just a universal, everybody's going to be saved. It just means this salvation, this salvation, this justification is going to be available for Jew, Gentile, all types of people, men, women, boys, girls, rich, poor, Jew, Gentile. It's not just going to be every single person who ever lived. And the reason why we know that is we just read. What did we just read back up in verse 17? You have to receive the free gift. Okay? Now here's the last one. Verse 19, the last compare and contrast. All right, what does verse 19 say? For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Okay, Adam's one sin of disobedience resulted in human beings being counted as sinners by virtue of Adam's guilt. Now, I'm not going to fill this in yet because this verse is confusing. Notice the wording there. What, what does he change it to? One act of what? Disobedience. Okay. In verse 15, what's it called? In verse 15, what's it called? It's called a trespass. In verse 16, what's it called? Sin. In verse 17 and 18, what's it called again? Trespass. In verse 19, what's it called? Disobedience. These are all just synonyms for sin. Let's think about sin for a moment. How has Paul described sin in Romans so far? It's falling short of God's glory. Exchanging God's glory for idols, exchanging the truth for a lie, trespassing against God's direct command, acting corrupt and twisted, going your own way. Fundamentally, sin is disobeying God's word. Okay, so what was the one act of disobedience that Adam did? What was his one act of disobedience? Ate the tree, okay? That was one act of disobedience. Okay, compare that. What was Jesus's one act of obedience? Why was what 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 did Jesus? What was Jesus obedient to? What was the one act of obedience that Jesus was obedient to? The cross. Now, how do we know that that was an act of obedience? Because Philippians two eight and following say that, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There it says it right there. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Okay, now, I want to see if you guys have been paying attention for the past few weeks. In the doctrine of justification, are we counted 
credited as being righteous because of Christ? Or are we inherently made morally righteous within us? Which one is it? The first or the second? The first. Okay, now read verse 8, 19 and see if it gets confusing in the ESV's translation. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's disobedience the many will be made righteous. Well, how can you be made a sinner if you're already born a sinner? And how can you be made righteous if God declares you righteous? So the ESV gets a little confusing with this translation, made. This is where we have to go into the original language and really understand what that Greek word means. Okay, What Paul is, is, is not saying here, Paul is not saying that Adam's sin made us morally bad, but instead the Greek word there is Adam's sin regarded us or constituted us as sinners. His guilt and sin was credited or imputed to us so that God looked at us or counted us as sinners on account of Adam. Okay, here's the point. When Adam sinned in the garden, that sin was credited to us. So how does God look at us? Like we were Adam and what Adam did. Does that make sense? You weren't there. But his act is credited to you. So God looks down from heaven. You're born. God sees, okay, you did what Adam did. You're credited with Adam's sin. You're in Adam. Okay, in contrast, what does God do when we get saved? We're not made morally good. We're not made righteous. But what does God do? We're declared righteous by account of Christ. The, the righteousness of Jesus is imputed to us so that God can look at, on us as if He's looking at Jesus. So here's the, here's the thing. We're credited as sinful. Over here, we're credited as righteous. So here's the whole point. What Adam did is credited to our account, so we're born with Adam's guilt. When we trust Jesus... We are credited with what Jesus did so God can declare us not guilty on account of Christ. Does that make sense? Okay, so these are the five comparing contrasts. Let's, so you are born under spiritual death. You're born under condemnation. You're born with death reigning over you. You're born under condemnation. You're born with, credited with the sin of Adam. That's every single person is born that way. When you trust Christ, when you receive Christ, you get... Grace, life, justification. You reign in life through grace. You get justification. You're credited as righteous. This is what Jesus does for us. So every single person is born in Adam. The only way to get in Christ is through faith alone. Okay? Now, in verse 20, Paul's going to address the role of the Jewish law, the law of Moses, because he may have some people in his audience who would object to what he's teaching. Because remember, the Jews thought they were automatically saved because they obeyed the law. I obey the Ten Commandments, I'm automatically saved, I'm good. Okay. So what does he say in verse 20? Now the law came in, what's the law? The law of Moses, the Ten Commandments, came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Okay. Before, all right, let's talk about this. When Adam's sin was that sin. When Noah sinned, was that sin? When Abraham sinned, was that sin? Now, was sin, sin, was it like, there was no sin until Moses came along and gave the law. 
Sin was sin was sin. But what happened when the law came? What did it do? Talked about this earlier. So what's the purpose of the law? Okay, read, read Romans 3.20. Okay. It was not to make the situation better, but actually worse. It increased, it says it increased the severity of the trespass because now people know what God expects. The law came in to increase the trespass. The law, the law made it worse because now you know that there's a name to it. So Romans 3.20 says, For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law gives you knowledge of sin. Okay, go to, go to chapter 7, verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means it was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that what might be shown to be sin... And through the commandment, it becomes sinful beyond measure. What Paul is saying is, we inherit sin from Adam. It makes us guilty. It makes us commit actual sins. But when the law comes in and puts a name to it, it makes it worse because now you know what it is and now you're accountable for it. But did God expect us to overcome this guilt? Did God expect us to overcome this? Is there any way you can overcome death, condemnation, being sinful? Is there any way you can overcome that? As a matter of fact, how much of that do you commit? Look at what verse 20 says. Where sin increased, where sin kept increasing, what happened? Grace abounded all the more. Which is great news. Because however deep your guilt is, however deep your depravity is, God's grace is greater. So in Adam, you're under the dominion of sin and guilt. It reigns over you like a power. Verse 21, sin reigned in death, but grace reigned through righteousness. It reigned over you like a power that you cannot come out of. It renders you helpless, hopeless, and hell-bound. Yet through faith in Christ, we are justified by His grace. We now have a new life that's no longer dominated by sin. We're victorious through a righteousness that gives us a permanent standing of being accepted before God. We have eternal life. Okay, so here's the bottom line. This chart, let me give you this chart and this entire passage of Scripture in some bottom line statements, okay? of what Paul's teaching. All humans are born into this world inheriting a sin nature from Adam. All humans are born into this world spiritually dead because of Adam. All humans are born into this world guilty on account of Adam. And to make matters worse, we physically die because of both Adam's sin and our own individual sins. Yet, okay, that's this category over here, this column, what we're born with. Okay. Yet, for those of us who have gone from being in Adam to being in Christ, what are the blessings we receive being in Christ? Okay. The good news is that those who have trusted Christ for salvation, have received the gift of salvation, we experience God's abounding grace, we reign in life, we are credited with Christ's righteousness, we escape condemnation. We have eternal life instead of eternal separation from God. Amen. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. 
You do not want to die being in Adam. How does Paul end chapter 5? It's very important. What are the last words of chapter 5 that Paul uses there? This leads to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What's he saying? The only way you have all of these benefits, the only way you escape sin, the only way you can have this eternal life is through Jesus Christ our Lord. He's the only way. Because John 3, 17 through 19 says, God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. If you don't believe in Jesus, what are you? Condemned. If you believe in Jesus, this is the judgment. Light came into the world, but the people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. What this means is that Jesus is the only way of salvation. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Acts 4, 11 and 12, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has now become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is the only way, no other name. And then John, 1 John 5, 11 through 12, 1 John 5, 11, 12. This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Okay, so let me ask you a question again. Is there any category of person that doesn't fit in either one of these two categories that lives in the world? Is there any middle ground? You are either in Adam or you're in Christ. There's no middle ground. And why is this all important? Because all of us are born implicated in what Adam did, but if you trust in Christ for salvation, you get all the blessings of what Jesus did. One man royally messed it up for us by one act. One man gave us stupendous blessings in the one act of the cross. And so better to be on Jesus' side than Adam's side. Amen? All right. Questions or comments? I'm not going to take some mind remarks tonight. I better. How much time do we have? Oh, we got six minutes. If you just want to have that tree there? Why did God put the tree there? The Bible doesn't explain why God put the tree there. That was, there's some things the Bible doesn't tell us why, it just it's there. The tree's there, God says don't eat of it. It doesn't say why he put it there. Do you know when God told him, to hold on to make sure he died? Mm-hmm. Did Adam know what that I don't know if he knew all the implications of it. I think he probably figured it out right away when he started like, oh, wow, I don't, I, like I'm getting arthritis. Or, or like, I mean, I, I hurt myself. I mean, I'm sure he, he started to feel the corruption of his body immediately he probably felt something immediately in his body i don't know if the bible specifically teaches that but i mean he began to die that day i mean he lived a long time until he physically died but i think i mean his body at that point began to experience decay the way our bodies do so it was a spiritual death and an eventual physical death 
for Adam. Now, for us, we're born spiritually dead, and when we're saved, we're regenerated, but we're still going to physically die. But on the final day, we'll be resurrected to new life. He will be one day. Adam died and was in, like, on that final day, all those who've died first will be, will be raised. There's only two people in the Bible that were taken up, Enoch and Elijah. Didn't experience physical death. Oh, yeah. How do I know Adam repented? Well, yeah, I mean, he, he was a lineage. Like, they got a, they, he passed everything along to Seth. I mean, are you saying that Adam's not saved? Is that what you're... Oh, I think Adam and Eve are saved. It's just they're the prototype and the beginners of sin. So they get blamed a lot. Yes, Cindy. This is a side view of the book of Genesis. But I find it really awesome that there is this, you see a very gentle, caring protection from God immediately after this because we look at it and we go, oh, they got kicked out of the Garden of Eden. And, yeah. and the, the cherubim with the, the, cherubim flam- the flaming sword. Back. But the reason is because now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever, God's saying, I'm not wanting you to live forever in your sin. Yeah. I'm going to kick you out so that, yeah. that you aren't getting your things. Yeah, I mean, this will blow you away, but Jesus' death was predestined before the foundation of the world, so there had to be sin in order for Jesus to come and die. <laughs> yes, Janae. Yeah, why is Adam? Why is Adam the scapegoat? Yeah, why is Adam the scapegoat but not eat? Well, there's both of them are implicated sometimes in the Bible, but um, here's the problem: Adam should have been protecting the garden from intruders, and he was not protecting his wife from the serpent entering. So Adam was not being a good protective husband. He allowed his wife to be attacked. Okay, so that's one thing that Adam had going wrong for, but. Because he was the first created and he, as the man, was the federal head, he is implicated even though she's the one that, I don't, he could have said no and not taken it from her. He, he did it. But because of the way God set it up, he is the federal head of the entire human race. Even though Eve um, was implicated in that, Adam is just kind of that representative of everybody. Does that make sense, Janae? Or? Well, that's kind of what I thought, but yeah. I always wondered why. Yeah. I, I, know, I know that he's supposed to be the head. I knew that. I'm just like, yeah. there's so much on about Adam eating the apple, as not quite as much as Eve doing it first. Yeah. You until know, pa- you're in childbirth and having the pains. <laughs> yeah, until you're in childbirth having the pains. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Blame it on Eve when you're having childbirth. <laughs> All right. Any last questions that we've got? We've got one minute. I hear the kids starting to get out of their classes. All right. Hopefully I made that clear, guys. That, that was, that's kind of a hard, that's a hard passage. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace, and we, we are so thankful 
even though we're born in Adam, we're born guilty, we're born sinful, you have rescued us out of that condition through Jesus and we have received salvation, grace, we reign in life, eternal life. Jesus, we're so thankful that we're in you, that we're in dynamic union with you. And, and Paul's going to go on to explain what that truly means, that we have this union with you when we get into chapter 6. And so thank you for rescuing us out of that. Help us to never forget that. Help us to always live in the joy of that. Help us to pray and plead with those that are still in Adam that are around us, that they would see their sin and they would come to faith in Christ. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.